tonight, Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for making it out on a cold and nasty evening, but I always appreciate that. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I need, I need these Wednesday night meetings desperately. Uh, just kind of a, a refresher, getting in the Word, getting around God's people. And uh, I, I know that I'm not in, like, I have been many years I spent in, in uh, working in the shop in different areas where there was a lot of, so I might not be exposed to the same people you are every day, but um, sometimes the only sane people I see is uh, church church services, so I'm just glad to have you <laughs> to be here with you, and, and uh, most, of, most of the people that come are sane anyway. I won't go into the who isn't. Uh, Philippians 2 is where we're at tonight. I'm going to look at, Paul mentioned last week, just thinking about what a thorn uh, in the side that Paul was for Satan. I mean, he, he couldn't do anything to get him down. He just, uh, uh, you lock him up in prison. He's winning his fellow uh, prisoners to Christ, his jailers to Christ. The people in the house of Caesar, he was winning to Christ. Uh, he was, he uh, wrote, of course, the epistles from jail, many of them. Uh, you set him free and he wins whole continents to, to the Lord. Uh, kill him and he gets a martyr's crown. So he, he just, Satan can't win against Paul. What a, what an example he is to us. Uh, so here in chapter 2, and, and we kind of did an introductory to it. Now tonight we'll begin with the first of the three examples. Paul gives us some examples so that we could uh, see these uh, how several people uh, dealt and had the right attitude towards, uh, towards serving the Lord. Of course, the first one's Christ, and he's going to be the perfect example uh, that he uses, and that's what we'll look at tonight, the example of Christ. Uh, Paul is beginning to deal here with the strife spirit that's found uh, in this church. He's going to name names later, uh, but at this point he's, he's dealing with them uh, by giving them some examples. So tonight we're going to look at the example of Christ. Uh, let's start reading verse number 6, Philippians 2, who being, well, let's go to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, uh, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Father, I pray tonight as we see this example given here, uh, what, a, uh, what a tremendous passage of Scripture this is. Uh, whole books have been written on this uh, simple passage right here, but I pray that you would help us tonight to just gain maybe an understanding of how we can apply it to our lives as we look at this perfect example. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, beginning here, the person... Uh, of Christ, the person of Christ is seen, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, Paul says that Christ was in the form of God. Now, the word translated "form" there means the external uh, appearance. Now, immediately after this, Paul uses the same word to say that Jesus, uh, Christ, took the, on the form, same word, of a servant. So, Paul presents 
two truths here, original language. We morphe theo, uh, in other words, the form of a of God, and then morphe doulos, the form of a servant or a slave. Now, when Jesus was born, he was in no way emptying himself of his deity. Jesus always was God. Uh, even as a man, he was always God. He cannot empty himself of his deity because uh, God is eternal, and so he cannot uh, be, not be God at any time. But he clothed himself in humanity. In other words, when Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be God because he could not do so. Uh, because Christ was God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's obvious, uh, because he was God. Uh, so he did not hesitate to claim deity. He did many times throughout his ministry. In fact, this is the time that people would pick up rocks wanting to stone him when he would claim to be one with God. Before Abraham was, I am. Remember that when he told the Pharisees that? And so this really upset the Jewish religious leaders, and because of that, they tried to kill him many times. Now, in spite of the fact of his deity, and here's what we got to grab onto, Jesus walked humbly on earth. Now just think about Jesus' humility. In fact, despite the fact that he was God, uh, he chose to be a servant. Now, you think about the time, remember John, James and John, uh, uh, they, they, the brothers that wanted to call fire down from heaven? I always laugh at that verse because I've been there so many times. Lord, I'll just stand back and you just bring a fireball from heaven right here. And they need it so desperately and it would bring such great satisfaction. I can understand the feeling there. But the thing is, Jesus actually could have. I mean, he could have done that. Uh, he could, as the song says, could have called 10,000 angels when they crucified him. But he chose not to. He made himself, the Bible says, of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Uh, kinuo is the word translated, uh, one word translated to the phrase made of no reputation. That means to empty or to make empty. He emptied himself, uh, again, not of his deity, but he emptied himself of his divine rights and his privileges so that he might fulfill his mission. Now, we could park there for quite a while. Because if we're going to do anything for God, it's going to, we're going to have to be willing to once in a while lay aside our rights and just be a servant for the Lord. Now, this is not something our flesh likes. Our flesh likes to demand our rights. And we want to get a lawyer. We want our rights. And as Christians, we want to do the same thing. How dare they treat us this way? How, how could this happen? We, we want our rights. Jesus, he set those aside so that he might fulfill his mission. He was a he made himself or took on himself the form of a servant, and he came to minister. Think about that, Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, so, as hard as it might be, uh, can we lay aside our flesh and lay aside our rights, and sometimes uh, take a little uh, uh, scorn or take a little persecution or take a little whatever uh, to keep the work of God going forward? And we better we better do be willing to do that the way Jesus did. This is a this is not popular today, but it certainly is something that Jesus did. Now he didn't cease to be God, but he took on himself the outward characteristics of a servant. So he assumed all that was human without surrendering anything that was divine. He was all God, 
all man. Don't ask me to explain it. There are some things that are unexplainable in the Bible, but we do believe that what the Bible teaches. Now, the word servant again here, doulos, means slave. Jesus became no man's slave, but he was a bondservant to his father. The Bible says in John 8, 29, And he that sent me is with me, for the Father hath not left me alone. Here it is, for I do always those things that please him. So Jesus was the perfect servant that was spoken of in the Old Testament. In fact, God in Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant, uh, talking about uh, Jesus Christ. He came to earth to serve. He served, though he was often terribly mistreated. Uh, it begs the question for us, how much mistreatment will we bear to continue serving God? I mean, sometimes it just takes the slightest thing to get us to quit. The smallest word. Uh, we ought to serve, no matter how we're treated. In Isaiah 53, uh, we see uh, in verses 8, uh, uh, well, we see in here in verse 8, Uh, the embodiment of Isaiah 53, when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Went through all of that uh, in obedience. He made himself a servant. And then he goes on to say here, and was made in the likeness of men. Now, when God said, let us make man, in Genesis chapter 1, he added there, we're going to make man in our image, in our likeness. Notice, by the way, our plural image singular. There's a trinity there. So let him make, let's make man in our image. Uh, man was created to be as much like God as a creature could be. Uh, man was endowed with an intellect. Most men were endowed with an intellect. I've met some that I've questioned, but uh, emotions. Uh, men were uh, given a will. We were given uh, the, the power to choose between good and evil. Uh, we, he gave us a body so that we could have the five senses, smell, taste, hear, see, touch, all those things. Then God gave us something that sets us apart from the animal creation. He gave us a spirit. So the three things, a man's body made him world conscious. This enables him to live in the world in a physical environment. Uh, Our soul makes us self-conscious. We are an individual. We have a personality. Our spirit makes us God conscious. We are uh, aware that he exists, we aware that we uh, exist to worship him and to bring him honor. Every man's really aware that at some point the Bible says that that's built within the heart of man. We under, uh, it's it's something that uh, that's why an atheist has to become an atheist. They have to talk themselves into it. Essentially, animals are different. Animals just do what animals do because of what they are. It's a built-in instinct that God's given them. Uh, God did not create man to be controlled by instincts, but by uh, our intellect and by our choices, and we need to have that that uh, Holy Spirit essentially in salvation, and then we can uh, live by the Spirit. Now, when Adam sinned, man was left with sin in control of his behavior. We call that the fall. So, man sin, all woman's fault. No, not really. Uh, but man, uh, woman sin, by the way, she gave to Adam with her. The Bible says so. I believe he was standing there letting this happen, which is. Uh, a serious failure on the leadership in his part. Uh, but So now our body becomes subject to disease, to death. 
uh, our intellect and our will are compromised. Now we are sin-cursed as the world that we live in. So our spirit now becomes the victim of secularism and false religion. Uh, man is no longer what God meant when he said, let's make him in our image. Anyway, as far as sin is, has ruined uh, that perfect person that we should have been. Uh, so man in sin is a distortion of the man that God intended to create. We got to remember this when we are faced with questions like, how could God, I, I, almost, <laughs> I almost showed a video, it might still at some point, uh, I, I pulled off, a, I forget the guy's name, a, a famous atheist that writes a lot of books and stuff against God, but it was in an interview and, and he was asked what would happen if you, when, if you died and then you faced God, you found out it wasn't, wasn't false after all. And the things this guy says, it's very disturbing. It's one reason I hesitate to show it, but uh, just, you know, just started to really rip into God for allowing all the bad things to happen that he's allowed to happen. And uh, incredibly prideful, you know, that's why if I was the interviewer, that's right, I'd probably step back a little bit, just in case God wants to take care of him right now, because it's very, very blasphemous. Uh, but that's, that's a, a big holdback to belief today by many people or something they use is that they look at the the disease and the suffering in the world and all these things that that uh, come we know because of sin that wasn't God's plan never was God's plan we sinned and that cursed the world that we live in so uh, it is true that man is is uh, in sin still is capable of deep emotion of great sacrifices and we, we hear that even in battle and in other areas. Uh, people do that even as unregenerate or unsaved. Uh, but that does not take care of the sin problem. So the Bible says in John 3, 7, you must be born again. That's why we have to be born again. We are in a sin-cursed condition, so we need to be born again. Uh, and then our separation is... It, we're, we're back into uh, into the family of God at that point. So we're born of the flesh, spiritually dead. We cannot cleanse ourselves of our sin and our guilt. Uh, we do all kinds of things to try to solve the problem. We invent religions or we deny the existence of God, uh, but we cannot do anything about our sin problem. Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, John 3, 6. All of this is important to understand that phrase was made in the likeness of men. So Jesus became truly human. Now, he was without sin. It's very important that Jesus was born of a virgin because how does, how does sin, how do we acquire our sin nature? Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. So death by sin. We inherit our sin nature from our father. Jesus had no earthly father. He had no sin nature. That's one of the very vital things about the fact of the virgin birth. It's important that we recognize that Jesus was born of a virgin. He does not have a sin nature. And so uh, he, Romans 5.12 does not apply to him. Uh, but Jesus became human in, in every other way except for the sin. So I believe, I think if we look at it then, the way that God intended man to be is what I believe Jesus was. Man without sin. Jesus was like Adam uh, before he sinned. In fact, Jesus calls him the second Adam. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, his spirit was always ruled by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, his intellect, his emotions, his will was always under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his, every single day, all of his physical activities, all was under the power of the Holy Spirit, was only pleasing to the Lord all the time. This is the kind of person we ought to have been until sin ruined that for us. We chose uh, to sin. So that's why he says, so let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, all that being said, uh, find something that's interesting here I wanted to point out. Uh, there's a four-part statement here that we've just went through, and we'll look at it again as we, as we go through it one more time. I want to connect it to the four Gospels because the four-part statement in this verse here can be applied to the four Gospels, and it really ties it up. I love to see how those things connect in Scripture. So let's do that very quickly. Uh, the first, the words here uh, in verse uh, 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The words Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus points us to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew was written to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He wrote to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ that they had been waiting for. In fact, he starts out with a genealogy. Uh, genealogy is that part of the Bible we often skip over. Uh, it's like, uh, like, uh, like the, like the uh, phone book, a, a reviewer of the phone book. He reviewed books, and he reviewed the phone book. He said, uh, a great cast of characters, but a weak plot. Uh, that's kind of how we look at the, the genealogies. Uh, that we, but, but Matthew put that there for a reason, to show the Jews that Jesus was uh, the Christ and to show that he was God. So uh, he also recorded the question of the wise men. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Remember that was in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Over and over in the book of Matthew, he documents that Christ's life, uh, he, he documents his his, uh, the, the uh, truthfulness of all the prophecies being fulfilled and all those things with Old Testament references. So Christ Jesus, Matthew. Now, if we go back to Philippians 2.6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, these uh, words of the Holy Spirit, I believe, point us to the Gospel of John. John is written to emphasize the deity of Jesus. Uh, he's writing toward the end of the first century, uh, he, a lot of heresies have taken root at the time that John wrote the Gospel of John. And so many of these heresies, like many of the heresies today, have you ever noticed one common thing about religions? They remove the deity of Christ. It's, it's fascinating. Look at, I've got a, that big purple book, The Kingdom of the Cults, if you've ever read that. You go through almost all of them. They, one of the first things they do is remove the deity of Christ. Uh, the, so John writes this book, to deal with some of those heresies, and he makes very plain that Jesus is God. He starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he, he, uh, he, he starts right in the beginning, and he writes his book toward that. He wrote us to assure us that Jesus was God in every sense of the Word. He did not become a God like some religions teach. He was God. His objective is clear. In fact, turn there, if you would, John chapter 1. Uh, keeping you, your finger in Philippians as well. John chapter 1, he starts out, in the beginning was the Word. Not that it started in the beginning, but that it was. It already was. Past tense. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus was already here in the beginning at, at the Big Bang. Okay, I believe in the Big Bang theory. God spoke and bang, it happened. Uh, the, in the beginning, so when God created the earth, he was already there. He was 
uh, he, he already was. The Word was with God, part of the Godhead. So he was part of the Trinity. And the Word was God. This is a statement of his deity. So his eternality, his part of the Trinity, and his deity all in that first verse. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You can't be clear that Jesus is God here. Now, the word uh, that he refers to him as the word here is one who transcends all thought in verse 1, transcends all time in verse 2, and transcends all things in verse 3. He was God. Luke used over 2,500 words to describe the incarnation or the first coming of Jesus when Jesus was born. John used 10. <laughs> he said, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That was uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Dwelt, uh, tabernacled is that word, uh, dwelt, the original word, uh, among us. In other words, he pitched his tent among us. It was a temporary thing uh, and he dwelt among us. John recorded Christ's I am statement to the Jews before Abraham was I am. That's a uh, 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 directly points to his deity. He wrote about the miracles of Christ that specifically declared his deity. Then he wrote in John 20, verse 30 through 31, uh, he gave the reason for his writing of his epistle or his uh, gospel there. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here it is, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This was John's purpose. He pushes to show the deity of Christ. Now, going back to Philippians again, let's look at verse 7, third statement. But made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. This is uh, in line with the book of Mark. The book of Mark is all about Christ the servant. Uh, he, he, Mark we call the servant gospel. Uh, now, there's no genealogy in Mark, and there's no genealogy in John. You know why those two do not have a genealogy? Now, the, the other two do. Uh, there's a, there's a gene, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, by the way, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, Matthew and Luke both have genealogies because in those Gospels we see a child born. In John we see a son given. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Uh, John does not talk about uh, the birth of Christ. He emphasizes the gift that God gave to us in his only begotten son. I mean, remember what John's focus was? Uh, John's focus was that he was God. As God, Jesus had no ancestry. So that wasn't his focus, the genealogy. Is it important? Of course, but it wasn't John's focus. His focus was his Godhead. Now, Mark doesn't have a genealogy either, but I believe that's for a different reason. He's introducing a servant. Now, no one is interested in the ancestors of a servant because they're servants, they're slaves. Nobody cares about slaves or servants and their ancestry. The important information you need about a servant is what he can do. And so that's Mark's focus. He is a servant. Uh, so we, in Mark's gospel, you start the first page, chapter 1, Verse 1, you start right into Jesus getting to work, getting busy, and being a servant. That's what Mark's gospel is all about. The key words in Mark's description of Christ all throughout the book, you'll see immediately and straightway those uh, action words. The key verse in Mark that uh, sums up his book, Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. 
and to give his life a ransom for many. In the first part, in the first part of Mark's gospel, we see the Lord Jesus giving his life in service. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In the last part of Mark's gospel, we see him giving his life as a sacrifice and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what Mark's all about. Jesus Christ was a servant. It was appropriate for Mark to write the gospel of the servant. <laughs> I, I think, I don't know if this had any part to do with it. This, this is always some speculation on my part. But remember, he failed as a servant. Mark did. Uh, the Bible talks about in Acts 15, 37 to 30. I won't go through it for uh, the sake of time. But Barnabas, uh, they were traveling with Paul, and, and Mark uh, failed to go with him, failed to go through with his whole duties. And it upset Paul. And later, they didn't want to allow Paul to come with him. Uh, Paul didn't want him to come with him. Later, he was restored in 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with me, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I wonder if it was Mark's writing of the gospel that uh, convinced Paul of his recovery or his understanding uh, of, of his service to the Lord. But Mark uh, wrote about Christ being a servant, which goes right along with the fact that he took upon him the form of a servant. Now, the final summary here of Christ's life, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, uh, was that he was made in the likeness of men. This aligns up with the book of Luke. The coming of the Lord Jesus as God's perfect man points to the gospel of Luke. You will remember Luke is writing primarily to, well, he's writing to Gentiles primarily to the Greeks. Uh, he portrays Jesus as the perfect man, the savior of men. Uh, the key verse in Luke is the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. The ideal in the Greek world was perfect humanity. The Greeks had gods. Uh, we still, some people still study them today. Made in the image and likeness of men. Interesting, this, I can't remember his name, but the one I was talking about a while ago uh, specifically said, I would have no problem if the Greek gods, if I faced the, the Greek gods one day, but uh, I, no, it wasn't. I was thinking his and mine. No, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll find out and share it sometime with you. But um, he's, he was one that would say these things. It was a British guy. So, but but uh, it's always interesting to me that it's it's God, it's Jesus. That's what angers people so much. Have no problem with the Greek gods, but with Jesus, who's perfect, they would. Uh, the problem, the thing is, these gods were really just better versions of themselves, and yet they weren't better. If you study Greek mythology, uh, they fought one another, they lusted, they behaved like basic super sinners, and so. And by the way, it's easier to uh, accept a sinner than it is a perfection, isn't it? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But anyway, so when Jesus came, God gave back to the human race a perfect man, and Luke showed him. Uh, a man showed the people he was writing to, a man who is absolutely sinless but still loved sinners. He showed him a man who was surrounded by wickedness but remained holy. Uh, Luke presented a man who was loving and lowly. He was patient and kind. He was humble. He was holy. He was pure and undefiled. Uh, Jesus was part of the human race, yet he was without sin. That's the focus of Luke. Paul described Jesus as the second man in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven. It's interesting uh, that he is the second man here for two reasons. He's, he, uh, because man in sin is not the man that God intended him to be. 
And so God calls Adam the first man. He calls Jesus the second man. He's the second man because he's not the last man. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15.45, he's called the last Adam, but he's not called the last man because God intends to populate heaven with men and women just like Jesus. Amen? Us one day. When we are perfected, when we're not under the sin curse anymore. Can't wait for that day. What a, what a blessing to be able to come to Christ unstained, I mean, by sin and, and uh, temptations and all those things. So God, uh, the, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Isn't that a blessing? That's what Luke is presenting. Man was made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus came in the image and likeness of men. Now we can be born again and grow in the image and likeness of him. Amen. And that's what uh, is such a blessing. John 3, 2, 1 John 3, 2, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So Luke focused on the wonderful, sinless humanity of Jesus made in the likeness of men. I thought that was interesting how these four statements kind of correlate with the four Gospels. And it's always an interesting thing to see. So that was the person of Christ. Moving very quickly, the passion of Christ. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, this is a big deal for Paul to say. Uh, because what bothered Paul most before he was a Christian, before he was saved, was the cross. As Saul of Tarsus, he did not believe the claims of the church, obviously he was persecuting the church. He did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He was persecuting his followers. To him, the most impossible thing about Christianity was the cross. That was a big stumbling block to, these, uh, to the Jews especially, that uh, Jesus would have died on a cross. Jesus' claim to be the son of David could be verified. That was easily verified in their records. Um, even the fact that Jesus died was not the final straw because the Old Testament prophecy foretold the Messiah's death. But what sealed the deal for Saul and many other Jews in that time was that the one who claimed to be God could die on a cross. This is what made his claims impossible uh, because Scripture tells us Galatians 3.13, Deuteronomy 21.23, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The idea that Messiah, the Son of God, would be born and die in a cursed death that was unacceptable to him. Cursed by the law, cursed by God, this would have been blasphemous. But then one day, Paul, as we know the story, Acts chapter 9, meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And uh, he was faced with a bright light. He heard the words, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. I love that little phrase because that means Paul's been under conviction already. He's already been dealing with a lot of this and, and he's been fighting it. He's been having inner turmoil. I think probably if it didn't start, it was probably ramped up when he saw Stephen stoned. Uh, seeing him uh, lift his eyes toward heaven and, and uh, talk about seeing the Son of God, or called Jesus standing beside God there at the right hand. After what had seemed the most impossible thing in Christianity, now it became the most impressive thing. And so Paul, as a Christian, wrote, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Something that we can be grateful for, that he did it for us when we understand uh, the, 
the sacrifice that, that God gave us in, in his son and he dying for our sins, now it doesn't become it doesn't become an impossible thing, but an impressive thing. What a terrible, terrible thing that the crucifixion was. And then, in closing, the position of Christ. He was exalted. Wherefore, verse 9, God had also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We must never leave Jesus on the cross. I do not like crucifix necklaces. I do not like crucifix statues in churches mostly Catholic churches, but some Protestant churches as well. He's not on the cross anymore. And uh, let's not leave him there. Uh, he's seated in the place of power. God has highly exalted him. He is the Lord from heaven. Uh, the day is coming when every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow. Calvary was not the end of the story. If I'm wearing a crucifix where he's still on the cross, to me, that's kind of like that's the end of the story. That's not the end. Wear a, a hole with a rock beside it or something, you know. Show the resurrection or an empty cross. Jesus isn't there anymore. God has no intention of letting the cross be the last word. Uh, so this is where every knee will bow. Three places, he said, of things in heaven. Now, heaven's the eternal abode of God. 1 Peter 3.22 tells us that Jesus is gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God. Heaven is the place of his presence. The Holy Spirit came from heaven. Heaven is the dwelling place of angels. Jesus, in Ephesians 4.10, the Bible says, is uh, exalted far above all heavens. Hebrews 7.26, he is made higher than the heavens. Uh, all those in heaven will bend the knee to him. Angels and archangels, cherubims, seraphims, thrones and dominions. Everybody's going to bow their knees to Jesus. Then things in earth, he goes on to say. Mankind today as a whole does not bow their knee to Jesus or to God. Millions today are bound by systems like communism, socialism, secularism, and and even religions and, and false uh, belief systems. The Bible says, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. That's a sad verse. Many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the way that leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Even we as Christians, uh, we find ourselves distracted sometimes by temporal things and largely ignore the work of God. But one day that's going to change. Every man, woman, child here on this planet will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says the things under the earth, the unsaved dead will be raised up again, summoned to the great white throne, talks about in Revelation, and they'll bow the knee. The leaders of the world will be under that judgment. Those who have rejected Christ uh, will bow the knee. Hitler will bow the knee. Mao Tsung will bow the knee. Mussolini, uh, all these uh, Stalin, all these uh, mass murdering dictators, they're going to bow the knee. doesn't matter how powerful they were on earth. Everyone will bow the knee. Those who hated Christ will be there. This Richard Dawkins and these men who uh, spend their life trying to disprove Christianity, they're going to bow the knee. And it's not something that I stand here, I, I, I honestly, I, I, I think I can say this honestly, I'm listening to those type of things and, and I don't, have the thought at all of, yeah, one day you're going to 
I, I don't have that thought at all. I, I'm, I'm terrified for him. I, I, I think how horrible it's going to be uh, to, to think of the shock. I mean, the, like the rich man that died in Luke when he, he, uh, he, he died and he lifted up his eyes in hell. Just think about that and, and the shock that that will be one day. Revelation 21.8, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. They'll all bow their knee to the Lord one day. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word translated confess here uh, means to confess openly. The day will come when everyone will confess uh, to the Lord, the glory of Jesus Christ the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God does everything uh, for his glory. So... Uh, great example, isn't it? Jesus Christ. Jesus could empty himself, make himself a nobody with all his power to serve God, just fulfill his mission. I, I think it's a great challenge for each one of us. Hey, can we just, can we just uh, set ourselves aside and set our rights aside? Just get busy for God and live for him and not think that we have to have... You know, there's, there's too many Christians, they think they got to have the red carpet rolled out before they'll do something. Everything's got to be just right before they'll serve God. Let's just get busy and do right for Him, amen? And uh, even when it's cold and snowy out, we still go to church, we still do the right thing and, and uh, still serve.